Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. We're picking up uh, our series on the Gospel of Mark, which we've kind of been away from since uh, the, I guess, um, the middle of, of March. And uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. So if you're, if you're newer uh, to us here at Crosswinds, uh, or if you're a visitor with us this morning, all the way back in March, um, before we um, we, we temporarily suspended our in-person services. We were working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and, and we're going to go ahead and, uh, and pick up. Uh, now, now, here's a question for, for everyone else, uh, those of you who um, have been calling Crosswinds your home. You were with us back in Mark. Where were we in the Gospel of Mark? Not just, not just Mark 12, 38 through 44, because I already said that, but, but what, where exactly, uh, what exactly had we looked at? What, what were we talking about? Um, what is the, the flow of the story in the Gospel of Mark where we left off? Now, now if you don't know the answer to that, don't, don't worry, because it had been so long that I actually had to look it up myself and had to familiarize myself uh, with uh, what exactly had been taking place in the Gospel of Mark uh, right where we were picking up. So uh, Mark 12, 38 through 44, this is the last story of Jesus' public ministry, and so we're going to see a turn uh, starting actually next week, where we're, we're focused on, on, the, um, on the crucifixion and uh, um, just, just how uh, all, of, all of the Gospel of Mark comes to a head in, um, in the story of the crucifixion and resurrection. Now, as you're open on, opening up to, to Mark chapter 12, I just want to give you a brief refresher, uh, spend two, three minutes uh, on what exactly is the Gospel of Mark about? Where, what have we seen so far in the Gospel of Mark? And, and really what we can, we can say is in the most simplistic sense, the Gospel of Mark splits into two sections. So Mark 1 through 8 and Mark 9 through 16. Mark 1 through 8 asks a question, and then Mark 9 through 16 asks a different question. The first question in 1 through 8 is this, who is Jesus? That's what all of Mark 1 through 8 is really about. Who is Jesus? And then you see like the high point in the Gospel of Mark, at the end of, of Mark chapter 8, you see that that answer is given to us. And, and then in, in 9 through 16, it actually builds on that question. And the second question, uh, the question of 9 through 16 is, what does that mean? So who is Jesus and what does that mean? Who is Jesus? That's the most important question that you will ever be asked, and Mark knows it. That's why he gives this onslaught of evidence in the first eight chapters answering this question. Now, what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark is in all of his stories, they're very short, they're very brief. He oftentimes doesn't give explanation, and he never comes out and gives us the answer, at least not yet. But if we are paying attention to the implications of the things that Mark is saying in each of these stories, the answer is obvious. And all of the miracles in Mark chapters 1 through 8, all of the healings, all of the exorcisms, all of the authority over nature, all of the authority over death itself, all of this points to the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Over and over, story after story, help us answer Jesus' question that he actually asked the disciples at the end of Mark chapter 8 says this, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
And if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark, if you've been paying attention, if you have ears to hear, just like Jesus tells us in in Mark chapter 4, then you will reach one impossible-to-miss conclusion. And that's the the answer that that Peter gives in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. This is the answer to Jesus' question. But who do you say that I am? And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament is pointing to one person, the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God who is going to come one day in the future to make everything right, to deliver God's people. But as soon as we get to the rest of Mark, Mark 9, 1 through, or Mark 9 through 16, even the disciples, they, they may have the right answer that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't understand what that means. In other words, they, they have the right answer, but they have the wrong dictionary, the wrong definition of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. They have no idea what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. They grew up on stories of the Messiah. They heard about how the, the Messiah would, would one day come and, and conquer Rome, and Israel would become the most powerful nation in the world forever. All of the other nations would become subservient to the Messiah, and significantly for the disciples, those that he chose to set over the nations. And wouldn't you know it, he's going to choose his own disciples. At least that's what they thought. But that's not what it meant that Jesus is the disciple, that Jesus is God, he's come to earth. The rest of Mark's gospel, Mark 9 through 16, answers the second question. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean? What is the significance of the fact that Jesus is the Christ? And and Mark applies this to two areas. He applies it to the area of, of who Jesus is. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ for Jesus? And then also, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ for those who would follow him? First, the answer is found in Mark chapter 10. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ for Jesus? Jesus said, see, we are going to, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, that means that he has come to die as a ransom for many. His great victory, the the promised victory of the Old Testament, isn't over Rome or other national world powers, but instead it's over the power of sin through his own death and resurrection. And and Mark is, is chiefly concerned with this right understanding of who Jesus is. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ. But it would be wrong to conclude that he's only talking about what does that mean for what Jesus has in front of him. Mark is also concerned about what that means for us, those who would follow Jesus. If Jesus is the Christ, and that means that Jesus is the king going to the cross, what does that mean for those who would follow Jesus, the king on the cross? And the answer is clear. It's really hard to stomach, but the answer is clear. If the way of the king will lead him to the cross then the same is true for those who would follow the king. Mark 8, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? If anyone would follow Jesus's footsteps, they must follow in Jesus's footsteps. If anyone would follow Jesus, then they have to follow the same path that Jesus took. We must surrender all of our rights to our lives. We have to give the keys to our lives over to the king who is on the cross. And and not just once, but we have to do that daily. And as we will see in this morning's passage, not just in in one area of our lives or or in two areas or even the majority of our lives, but, but Jesus, as the king of the cosmos, demands that we give him authority over every single area of our lives. And this morning's passage is an appropriate reminder of that truth. Just like the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it is, it is a passage concerned with how do we respond to the truth of who Jesus is. And it gives us this really powerful contrast, this powerful contrast between false devotion, which we will see from the scribes, and true wholehearted devotion, that which we see from the widow. And on the one hand, we have the scribes who on the outside, they, they look like the model disciples. But God is not fooled by their appearances. He can see the heart. And on the other hand, we have the widow, one who seemingly offers nothing to God, but who doesn't go unnoticed to the Lord Jesus. Everyone else's eyes pass over her, but not the eyes of Jesus, not the eyes of heaven. So we're going to go ahead and just look at this passage in two sections, first looking at false devotion, second looking at at true devotion. But as we approach God's word, let's pause for a moment of prayer. Please pray with me. God, as we uh, approach uh, this gospel this morning, we do ask that you would use this passage not just for information transfer, not just for the increase of our knowledge, but that your spirit would use this passage as a surgeon uses a scalpel, that, we would, uh, that you would use it to, to remove the cancer uh, of self-love from our hearts this morning, that you would, you would pierce our souls if it's necessary so that it would bring you much honor and it would help us to be more fully devoted followers of the King who is on the cross. Jesus, it's, it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, first, as I mentioned, we're going to look at the scribes, this example of false devotion, Mark 12, 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honors, honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. Now recall the setting of this this passage. Jesus is teaching in the temple. This is Passover week, so tens of thousands of Jewish um, devote people have have come all across the globe to, uh, to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. The Passover, remember, is this celebration or remembrance of, of God's deliverance to the people of Israel from slavery to Egypt that takes place in the book of Exodus. And And uh, to, to help us understand what it was, would have been like in Jerusalem at that time, um, Jerusalem swelled uh, to, to like two and a half times its size uh, over the, the course of the Passover week. Um, some estimates say there were about 80,000 people living in Jerusalem, um, and, and that would swell to about 250,000 people that were in Jerusalem during the Passover week. And if you are familiar with, with the Clay County Fair, 
And you know how there's just that, that energy that comes to Spencer each year with the fair. There's, there's this, uh, it's a big event. So there's, there's tens of thousands of people that flock to town. Kids, they get excited to go on, on the rides, all that kind of stuff. You're familiar with the lakes, you know, the energy that comes uh, over Fourth of July weekend or Labor Day weekend or Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I want you to imagine that sort of electric buzz that's just in the air, but then amplify it by a hundred. Because it was every year during the Passover, it wasn't just this exciting time to be around a lot of people and to enjoy yourself. It was actually that there was this expectation that would be growing each and every year that God delivered us from slavery to the Egyptians. And one day he's going to do the exact same thing, freeing us from slavery, possibly from the Romans. And there's this eager expectation and there's this longing of the people of, of of Israel for freedom that reaches this fever pitch. And in this tension, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and questions are surrounding him because he's been doing ministry uh, throughout the countryside for a couple of years at this point. And the questions are, is he the Christ? Is he the one that's going to deliver us from the Roman? Of course, uh, these questions aren't coming from the religious leaders. We see in the beginning parts of Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the, they, they hate Jesus. They've been plotting to destroy him for, for quite a while. But in Mark 11 and 12, we see uh, six stories of, of escalating conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it shows us two things. First, it shows us that this is what actually happened. That's why Mark uh, records it. It's because it actually happened. This is what leads to the eventual death of Jesus at the end of the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15. And, and Mark just tells us because this is what happens. He's explaining history. But secondly, and maybe even more important for our text this morning, it's included to show us the corruption of the leaders of Israel, the religious authorities, those who um, are, are supposed to be examples and, and leaders of the flock to, to point people to the Lord, they're actually those who are the most bankrupt spiritually and even morally at times. Those who would be waiting for, should be waiting for the Messiah are the ones who are increasingly ready to kill him. And they may put on good appearances, but they're hollow, they're dead on the inside, and it's in this context that Jesus issues a, a warning to his disciples and, and to anyone else who would hear and, and even to us this morning, beware. That's what we see at the beginning of this passage. Beware, look out. Just, just because they're impressive on the outside doesn't mean that they are faithful on the inside. And just as importantly, just because they know their Bibles more than you do doesn't mean that they believe their Bibles. And just consider three aspects of this false devotion, not just from the scribes, but really false devotion in general that we see from Jesus uh, Jesus is teaching in these verses. First, they are, comp they are more concerned with appearance than they are with worship. And that's true of, of false devotion, uh, no, ma no matter the context, no matter the age. False devotion, the heart of false devotion is more concerned with appearance than it is with worship. And that's what Jesus starts with. He starts with a, a, a depiction of their dress. They wore long flowing robes. These were like full length prayer shawls. That, that no one else would wear. And, and as you could imagine, this would stand out quite a bit from everyone else that day. And eyes would be drawn to these types of robes because they were a status symbol. They would communicate to those who saw them that this person takes their faith very, very, very seriously. And certainly more than you do because you don't wear a prayer shawl 24-7. And the prayer shawl you wear is significantly smaller. Of course, Jesus knows their hearts. They aren't wearing these full-length prayer shawls, these flowing robes, because they're serious about prayer. 
They're wearing them because they're head turners. They like people looking at them, and they love that attention that they get. They love the rush that they feel when they see people's eyes begin to look at them in the marketplace. And, and the sense of, of, of awe, the sense of, of unworthiness that comes when people look at them and they see, man, these people have their acts together. These people are serious about following God. And really the same is true about Jesus' statement about greetings in the marketplace. When they were out and about, it was custom for the common folk, those who weren't scribes, to actually refer to them as, uh, with a term of respect, something like rabbi or my lord even, master, my great one, teacher, those kind of things. They, these people, they knew their Bibles more than anyone else, and they are the smartest people in the room, and they, they honestly wanted people to know that, and, and to not just know that, but actually to recognize that. Do you see where their focus is this morning, in, in this passage? Their focus is, is not on the Lord, but it's on themselves. Mark chapter 10, just a few verses earlier, Jesus tells us the two most important commandments. Jesus answered, the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Is that where their, their focus is? Is their focus on, on loving God wholeheartedly, loving others sacrificially? And they may put on the appearances of loving God. Look at how devout I am. Look at how much I know about God. But they're far more concerned with giving the impression that they love God wholeheartedly than actually loving God wholeheartedly. They, they love the, the impression or the appearance of being fully devoted to the Lord than actually being devoted to God. And that's really true of false de- devotion, no matter the age. Authentic worship doesn't matter. What really matters is fooling people into thinking that you are authentic and you are faithful in your worship. There's a second closely related aspect of of false devotion. False devotion is a cover for pride. It's a cover for pride. This is what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about the best seats in the synagogues, the best seats um, in in these banquets. Growing up, uh, my family, we attended a very traditional Presbyterian church, and uh, it was one of those church um, churches that actually had the, the seats um, for the pastor up at the front, and, and the pastor would look out over the rest of the congregation for the entire service. That's, the, that's where the pastor would sit. They would sit up on, on the platform, um, and they would, they would watch and observe everyone else. Now, I don't, I don't bring that up to, to say that or, or claim that my pastor was an example of someone who's consumed with pride. He, he loved the Lord. As far as I know, he still loves the Lord, loves Jesus faithfully. I bring that up because that tradition started all the way back in the Jewish synagogue. This tradition of, of having the leader, the, the person um, who is teaching, to, to be not seated with the congregation, but to be seated separate from the congregation and looking at the congregation uh, actually has its roots in the Jewish synagogue. The best seat that Jesus is referring to here, uh, it, it's not the seats at the back that we fight over today. Uh, it's actually one up on the stage uh, because it signaled to everyone just how important that they were, how, how much that they knew. And, and the scribes, they, they love that sort of attention. The same is true at banquets. These were the people who always sought to be at the equivalent of the head table at a wedding reception. It's because they were, they were filled with this insatiable desire 
to be known. They're constantly keeping score of how many people are paying attention to them as opposed to other people and how they can, how, how they can increase that number, how they can increase their significance, their platform, their, um, their authority over others in the eyes of others. And really the same thing is true of false devotion today. If we don't steward, uh, it, we don't steward the gifts that we have, whatever they may be, whether they're resources, talents, uh, gifts, passion, time, uh, false devotion doesn't steward those as a way to, to serve God and, and to, to love others. It does it instead to draw attention to self. Not to love, not to serve, well, anyone except for yourself. What matters most is not being faithful, but instead just stroking your own ego, making yourself feel better, giving yourself a bigger and bigger audience. The third area Jesus addresses, false devotion is consumed with greed. It's consumed with greed. Jesus says that the scribes devour widows' houses. This is figurative language to describe perhaps the most deplorable thing of all. False devotion takes advantage of other people in order to get what it wants. When I was in college, um, I occasionally did, I, I went to Northwestern in Orange City, and uh, I occasionally did pulpit supply uh, for this, this small, tiny church in Lamar's that, that didn't have a pastor. And this church, they, they paid me an honorarium uh, every single time I, I filled the pulpit. Um, but the first time I preached there, there was this older single woman who uh, didn't realize I was getting an honorarium. And, uh, and she was concerned that I wasn't getting paid. And so after the service, she walks up to me. She gives me a check. And, and um, it, wasn't, it wasn't large, but it was more than I deserved, especially as a college student. Um, and I remember that when she did this, I, I, I thought she was just giving me a, an ex, extra gift, an additional gift. Um, I, I was a bit taken aback, a, a little uncomfortable in that moment. And, and side note, um, I hate it when people just hand me their offering. So don't, so don't do that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that, that kind of derailed it. Um, <laughs> she handed me this gift. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with it, but I'd also been, been advised kind of to have this mindset of, of never ask, never refuse. And so I thanked her, and we continued talking. Um, and, and I, you know, yeah, just, we just continued talking. And as I'm talking to her, the, uh, a few moments later, the church secretary, she walks up, and, and she hands me this second, this check from the church. And, and I remember... Really, I don't think I'll ever forget the, the look on this woman's face, and, and it almost seemed like it was a look of betrayal. Uh, she, she looked confused. She, she didn't say anything, but, but I always think of her when I read this passage about the scribes, because I, I wonder if, if in that moment, did she think of me as one of these scribes? that I was taking advantage of the vulnerable for my own financial gain. This moment is really just a, a misunderstanding, really drove home to me the, the greed at the heart of so much false devotion, not, not concerned with the things of God, but only using them as a means to the end that, that we want our own financial gain and success. You see, at its core, the heart of false devotion is this. False devotion uses the worship of God as the avenue to worship self. It uses the worship of God to, as the avenue to worship self. That's the heart that uses these long prayers, as Jesus says here, not, not as a form of crying out to God, but really as a way to impress others. Flowery language to make others 
feel, wow, this person that I am sitting before, they really have a faith. They are really mature in their faith. This is the painful truth of these first verses. False devotion uses God, uses God, really. It, the, the, it pretends to worship him. It goes through the motions of authenticity for selfish ends. That's what this worship of self really means. It, it, it's this fooling of others, maybe even yourself, honestly. And I think we should just recognize that we are really good, not just fooling others. We're also really good at fooling ourselves. And so we have to intentionally be examining our own hearts. It, it's fooling others into thinking that we are worshiping God, but in all actuality, we're just doing so because we care only about ourselves. And this is the painful truth of these first few verses. Do we do this again? Uh, uh, of course, we, we do this today. Sure, some of us may do it um, in, in the way we dress, but some of us may do it in the outright pursuit of honor. Um, some of us may do it in this brash form of, of greed, but that's usually not the way it shows up in the church today, at least not in, in our church. Um, I, I want to share one example, and this is just one. It, 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 uh, this, this sort of false devotion creeps into every area of life. But I just want to give one example that I've seen in my own life. I, I think it's relatively common in the church today. Um, okay, let's say a, a person is struggling with two sins. Of course, they're, they're struggling with more than that, but, but let's just boil it down to, to two persistent battles that they are always fighting, that they, that they are constantly in this temptation. One of them is they spend too much time on their phone. They, they spend too much time on their phone. They, they know it's a bad habit. They know that they should be more involved with their family, that they shouldn't be checking their phone so much at work, but that's the reality of their life. They're not doing bad things on it. They're, they're not you know, going to unhealthy or, or immoral places. They're, they're, just, um, they're just addicted to always being connected, Okay. The second sin is a little more uh, insidious. They, they've begun to actually steal money from work. It, it really, it, it started with this small IOU from, from the petty catch, you know, I'll, I'll pay that back. But after a while, it becomes larger and larger and larger um, from more and more and more creative places to cover their tracks. Now, now they're at a point where they, where they, can't, they can't pay this money back anymore. And they begin to try to cover their tracks and resolve to not take anything more, but, but the, the damage is done. And let's be honest, once you, you go to that well, once you start down that path, it's really easy to return. No matter how many times you may say, I'm never doing this again. I'm going to stop. It's really easy to keep going down that path. And all the while, this person, they're, they're continuing to go to church services. They're, they're involved in, in church activities. They are uh, still faithfully attending their life group. And one night at life group, uh, they, the, the question is asked, what are some sins that you need to confess? What are some sins that you need to confess? And that person's mind instantly goes to the moment or to this, this fact that they have been stealing money from their job. It's the first thing that comes to their mind. But almost as soon as that flares up, there is this equal response that says, no. That is, that is too embarrassing to share. And so in this silence, as everyone's processing and thinking, what exactly can I share? What do I need to confess? They, this person is, is processing, they're racking their brain, and, and, and they come to a, to a moment and they say, you know what, I, I, I spend too much time on my phone. And here's the thing, that's, that's true. It is something that they need to, to confess. It is something that they need to repent of. But there are two, two problems with what they're doing here. First, they're not genuinely repenting. 
They're not even genuinely confessing their phone uh, addiction. They're using it as a distraction from the real problem. They're using a, a spiritual act, confession, repentance, not in, in, because they're authentic, because they want to distract from the real issue. And second, they're ignoring the prompting of the Spirit. They're stifling the, the Holy Spirit, convicting them, telling them to confess the graver sin in their life. And we do this all the time. You can fill in your own personal sins, it, it, and it differs for, for each of us. Whatever we find to be the most embarrassing, that's the thing that we, we try not to tell others. That I'll, God and I, we can deal with this on our own. And we'll confess some of these smaller sins that we struggle with. I, I, I can look at my own life and I see, wow, there are way too many times that I, am, I have more in, in common with the scribes than I would like to admit. Do you see the, the, the irony here? We, we confess we, we use a spiritual act as a way to keep up our appearances, to keep others impressed with us. I, I remember I did this exact same thing several years ago. I was in a group, and, and we were going around confessing sins, and there was this one area where I was really struggling, and, but I also struggled with pride. And so in the group, I, I confessed pride and just ignored this. And do you see the irony there? I confess the sin of pride in order to protect my pride. That is false devotion at its core. And I think if we begin to examine our hearts, we begin to realize we have way too much in common with the scribes, at least more than we would like to admit. We're, we're far too concerned with appearances. And honestly, part of this is we don't believe in the gospel of grace. We don't believe that, that grace is actually what saves us. Well, we sure, grace saves us from other things, but, but we, we don't let the truth that there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so we use religious acts as a way to cover our own sin and pride. I haven't even begun to uh, say how true this is, for those who are in positions of Christian leadership, Paul David Tripp, um, a wonderful, godly man, he, he wrote a book called Dangerous Calling, and it points out that there's this constant battle within each and every one of us, the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And the additional part, problem for those who are in Christian leadership is that the line of demarcation is so much harder to see, especially in preaching. In, in moments of preaching, oftentimes the kingdom of God expands while also at the same time the kingdom of self expands. If the kingdom of God is growing, as, as more people are, are submitting themselves to the word of God preached through a preacher, at the exact same time the kingdom of self is expanding because more and more people are coming to hear that preacher. And false devotion uses the worship of God as the skin, as, as the avenue to really just be worshiping self. It doesn't place God on the throne Instead, it places our own wishes, our own demands. And Jesus ends his words here with a warning of the end result. He, he says, this will lead to condemnation. This punctuates Jesus' warning, the strength of Jesus' warning, the importance of listening and paying attention to this heart of true devotion. And that's what we see from the widow in the rest of our passage. Mark 4, or 12, 41 through 44. 
And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came in and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So here's Jesus after this long day of teaching in the temple next to where he sits down, next to where the offering boxes are located. And Jewish records tell us that there were 13 of these offering boxes in the temple. They had a a large metal uh, trumpet, really just a funnel that was attached to it. So that way you could could put your money in the the top and it would just funnel down into where the, the offering box collected the money. Remember, this is, um, this is the first century. All currency is in the form of coins. There's no paper money, no checks, no credit cards. And so everyone who is making a donation, an offering in the temple, um, financial offering in the temple, is doing so with coins. Now, what's, what's it going to sound like when you take metal coins and you throw them into or put them into a metal funnel? It's going to make a loud noise, right? I'm going to take my ring. This is a metal pulpit. It's going to sound like that. The more that you throw into the funnel, the louder it is going to be. And sure enough, Mark tells us that as Jesus is sitting there near these offering boxes, he's watching these pilgrims from all over the world. Remember, this is the Passover. They're making their donations to the temple. And some of these pilgrims, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, some of them are extremely wealthy. And so as they make their donations, those donations are going to be really, really, really loud. But Jesus doesn't draw his attention, the attention of his disciples, to the giving of all of these uh, rich people who are giving in their excess. He doesn't doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say that these are people, uh, if you you give out of the the excess of your heart, that that you're not a, a true disciple. He doesn't question their hearts, but instead he draws the attention of his disciples to this widow and to her offering. She brings forward two small coins. These coins, actually the name, the Greek name for the coin is thin. That's because of how small they are. They would have barely made a tink. That was even too loud. I shouldn't even have done that. Uh, They make a tink in the midst of the loud noises of other offerings. No one hears the widow's offering. No one sees, no one notices the widow's offering except for Jesus. You see, Jesus sees this small gift. It's not even going to make a dent in the temple's operating expenses, let alone contribute to the massive renovations that are taking place at that moment. He sees that widow's offering and he is so impressed by it that he calls his disciples to him And he declares that this woman has given more than anyone else. Now, on the surface, this, of course, doesn't make any sense, right? In no scenario is one penny worth more than 50,000 or 500 or even $5. So what does Jesus mean when he says that this widow has given or put in more than everyone else. This is an incredible word, right? This word more. Because everything about this woman 
from a very physical, purely earthly standpoint, is less. And Jesus says that she has given more. Well, plain and simple, Jesus is just revealing the economy of the kingdom of God. God cares far less about the amount that you give. He cares far less about the amount that you give than the cost that it is to you. Honestly, it's it's not even primarily about percentage. A person with a million dollars can give away 90% of their income and still have $100,000 to live off of. They will certainly feel the cost of that gift, but not as much as the person who has $100 to their name and they put in 50 and only have $50 less. What Jesus is concerned about, the kingdom of God is concerned about, is not the amounts of the gift, but the cost of the gift to you. That's what Jesus says. It's not a concern about the percentage of the income you give. It's about how much it costs you. And for this widow, it costs her everything. All that she has to live on. And that's the principle of kingdom giving from this passage. God doesn't count what you give, but instead what you have left. And just take a, a step back from the, from the topic of giving this morning. Yes, This passage has a lot to say about giving habits. It talks about the importance of giving sacrificially. And and if we avoid that, then we're missing part of this passage. But at the same time, we look at this passage through the lens of the Gospel of Mark as a whole. And Jesus is using this widow, especially in contrast to the scribes, as the perfect example, not just of generosity but of something far more all-encompassing. Faith. Faith. You see, this widow shows us the heart of true devotion. At its core, true devotion gives everything to the Lord. It holds nothing back. True devotion gives everything to the Lord Jesus and holds nothing back. Just like this widow. Her giving is a microcosm of her entire life. Everything that is hers, everything that she is, everything that uh, is a part of her being, she gives to the Lord. Nothing is off limits for God. You see, this passage isn't primarily a directive about how much you give. Now, it is saying if you don't give all of your money, it it does have something to say about sacrificial giving. But it's not as though it is saying if you don't give away all of your money, then you are a fake. That's that's not the point of this passage. Honestly, you could, here's the reality of false devotion. You could give away all of your money and still be doing it with a heart of, of false devotion like the scribes, one of decay, one of rot, only concerned with yourself, only concerned with the appearances uh, that you have in front of others. No, Mark is, is not just talking about giving. He's painting a picture of what a true, uh, a true disciple looks like, a person who really takes seriously Jesus' words in Mark 8, which we read earlier, about what it means to follow him. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
You see, if you would be a true follower of Jesus, if you would be a true disciple of Jesus, then it will cost you everything. And that certainly influences your finances, but that's not because God singles those out as though those are the most important areas of your life. It's because his call to discipleship, to hand over the reins, the, the authority, the decision-making in our life, uh, lives, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's every area of our lives. True devotion gives everything to the Lord and holds nothing back. And as we come to the end of this passage, we see exactly what Mark has done time and time and time again through this gospel. One of the reasons why Mark is my favorite gospel is because it's an excellent teacher. It doesn't spoon feed us the answers. It lets the implications of Jesus' teaching, his words, his actions just hang in the air. And we have to, we have to pursue and, and reach the conclusion on our own and, and apply what Jesus is saying to us. And the question of this passage is relatively obvious. As we examine our lives, as we examine everything that that entails, our hearts, our thoughts, our actions, our finances, the way we spend our time, our activities, our interactions with others, our imagination, our relationships, everything. As we examine those things, every sphere of our, of our lives, do we have more in common with the scribes or the widow? Let that question sink in. Do we have more in common with the scribes or the widow? Is our life primarily about us? Do we use our faith as an excuse to pat ourselves on the back, make ourselves feel good about ourselves, to, to protect and, and further our own ego, or are we only looking out for ourselves? Are we like the scribes or are we like the widow we throw it all on the table and say god i may not have much but every single piece of me everything that i have i give it to you and that's the truth of this passage of this contrast the way of the disciple is the way of total surrender the way of the disciple is the way of total surrender. Being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean that we give him access to 99% of our lives, but we hold on to that ownership of that one, last 1%. It means that we give it all to him, that nothing is off limits for God, and the way of the disciple is the way of, the to of total surrender, and we have to ask ourselves, have I given everything to the Lord Jesus? Have I made everything, all that I am, available to him so that when he asks or if he asks i am ready or am i holding back this past week as i was studying this passage i came across one really helpful note about the widow's offering how many coins does she give two right I think that's significant because if the primary mass message of this passage was sacrificial giving, she would still have given sacrificially if she would have only given one of these two coins because, you know, how can you live off of half of a penny? The fact that she gives both of these coins shows that she is a woman of true devotion. It's symbolic 
of what it means to be a true disciple. You might not have enough or a lot. And it might be a sacrifice to give what you, part of what you do have, but you can still hold something back. No, the heart of a disciple throws all that we have into the hands of Jesus and says, here I am. All that I have is yours. The way of the disciple is the way of total surrender. What about us? Are we people of total surrender? Do we have more in common with the widow or with the scribes? Impressive in appearance, but little sacrifice, little surrender. Let us be a people, our, our devotion may go unnoticed like the widow, but let it be wholehearted. Jesus says that anyone who would be his disciple must surrender everything to him. Will you answer that call? Let's pray. Father, as we hear this passage, um, I, I guess I just say, looking at my own life, Lord, have mercy. I do thank you for the grace that is given to us on the cross. Even as I, I said earlier, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I, I ask that you would help each of us be a person, that we as a church would be a people who are wholehearted, devoted followers of the Lord Jesus. That we would not hold on to anything, but we would surrender it all into your hands. Help us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.